Welcome and thanks for listening to the Community Christian Church Podcast. To learn more about Community Christian Church, visit us online at cccsterling.org. Today's message comes from Pastor Tony Ria. Good morning. Once again, we want to welcome you to Community Christian Church and say it's really good to have you. As you just heard in the video, uh, we're in the middle of our series, our October series, entitled Hope in the Dark. We've been talking about hope for the last couple of weeks now. And two weeks ago, when I introduced the series to you, I gave you a working definition for the subject of hope. This word hope that we toss around, uh, we use it a lot in our everyday language. And so I wanted to give you something that we could hold on to, something that we could all embrace as we talk about the subject of hope. And so two weeks ago I said that hope is the expectation of something good. It's the expectation of something good. It's the anticipation of a promising and favorable future. And most everyone has high hopes when life is good, when everything seems to be falling into place. But then when life takes a turn for the worse, when it gets difficult, and downright devastating, that's when hope can fall by the wayside and you find yourself filled with hopelessness and despair. And it doesn't take long to get there. I mean, that very dynamic that I just described to you, it can happen overnight. Things can change in a hurry. Now, just a couple of weeks ago, a gal responded to our time of ministry and prayer here at the altar following our service And I had an opportunity to pray with her. And my heart was heavy during that prayer because I could just sense her desperation. I could feel her pain. Come to find out she was going through a divorce and she was so distraught over the divorce she had to go on medication. She was extremely fearful, filled with anxiety, barely keeping her head above water. And over and over again, during the time that we were ministering and praying for her, she kept saying to me, I can't take this anymore. I can't take this anymore. Have you ever said that? Ever thought that? Ever have that feeling that it's just not going to work out for you? Well, just about the time that you think you are out of human strength, that you have nothing left to give and nothing left to fight with, that's when the supernatural strength of God kicks in. In the Bible, we call that grace. It's when we're at the end of our rope and God begins to take over. And in 2 Corinthians 12.9, when Paul was going through a situation like that, And Paul didn't even know if the future had anything positive for him. In 2 Corinthians 12, 9, the Lord spoke to Paul and said, My grace, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. In other words, God said that when our human strength fails or when our human strength is weak, his divine strength kicks into gear. And that one revelation alone, that revelation that Paul received right there in 2 Corinthians prompted him to say in Philippians 4.13, I can do all things 
through Christ who gives me strength. Not in my own strength, but in His. That's the strength that Paul was featuring here in Philippians 4.13. The strength that God provides for us, the strength that Jesus gives to us. The problem is, we love human strength. We boast in the amount of strength and power we have. And make no mistake, some of you are so strong and you're tough as nails. But every now and then life happens. And that's when our strength can collapse. Our strength can falter. We can find ourselves in that place of hopelessness and thinking to ourselves, I just can't take this. And in Psalm 73, 26, Asaph, one of David's worship leaders, a a man who had this incredible relationship with God, he said, my heart and my flesh may fail. In fact, it's going to fail. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. God is the strength when I have no strength. And so when we hit our limit or our max human strength-wise, the Bible says because of the grace of God, we still have another gear. There's still a little bit more mileage left in the tank. And I promise you this, even when it seems like God is nowhere to be found, when you don't sense his presence, when you can't feel him near you, God is with you. He's in close proximity to you. He does not leave us. He does not abandon us. He's always up to something. God is always at work, and that something is always good. Can I get you to say that? That something is always good. Now, I want everybody to say it like you believe it, that something is always good. You see, God's always up to something. He's always got us in mind, the scripture says. And he's a good God. David said in Psalm 14 and 8, and we saw this two weeks ago, we looked at this two weeks ago, taste and see that the Lord is good. That word taste in the Hebrew means to perceive and become aware of, to realize, comprehend, and fully understand the God we serve is a good God. Throughout the month of October, we've been attempting to put that in you, indelibly stamp that on your brain and heart. The God we serve is a good God. The God we serve is a good God. I made a big deal about that two weeks ago in lesson number one. I told you God is good. Last week, Pastor Chris and Abdu continued right where I left off. And even with the question and answer format, we were able to affirm that God is good when life is not. That God is still good even when we face trials and tests of every kind. God is on the throne. God is in control, and God is good when our world is turned upside down and when it's spinning out of control. And so during these times of uncertainty that we all go through, we have a faithful God that we can look to who is good. And again, in Psalm 34, the same psalm I just quoted from, a few verses later in verse 18, David, who establishes that God is good, goes on to say, That the Lord is near, God is near, he's close to the brokenhearted, and he saves those who are crushed in spirit. 
God is near to the brokenhearted. And he saves those who are crushed in spirit. Please see with me that not only is God near to us, not only is God in close proximity, especially when we're going through tough times, not only does he make himself known when we need him most, but he is at work. He's doing something. What is that something? It's good. The something that God is up to is good. David said, he's near to the brokenhearted and he saves those who are crushed in spirit. And so it's during the darkness and during the down times that God moves into action and he rolls up his sleeves and he performs three distinct activities or actions. And it's during these activities that God proves to us, he shows you the kind of strength that he has. When I tell you that at the end of our human strength, God's strength kicks into gear, what does that mean? What does that look like? Well, during the times of difficulty and the times when we're in lonely places and desolate places, God performs these three activities. And here they are. He remembers his promise. He removes fear. And he rescues from trouble. One more time. God shows his strength. He proves to us that he's a good God during the times of difficulty because he remembers his promise and he removes fear and he rescues from trouble. And this morning what I'd like to do in the rest of our time here together is I'd like to take a look at one Old Testament Bible story. Just one. And in that one story, God involves himself in all three activities that I just described to you. And now the story that I'm referencing is the Exodus account of the parting of the Red Sea. How many of you remember that story? A few of you. It's a good one. It's a really good story. Because God acts in a miraculous way a couple of times there. And what he does is he literally stops a flowing river and he piles up the water. You heard me correctly. God stacks water on top of water in the same way that we arrange building blocks. I'd like you to try that one time with the water. It's a pretty impressive miracle. In fact, it's one of those unforgettable God moments in the scripture. And when you read through the Old Testament, years and years after the event took place in Exodus, God raised up prophet after prophet to remind the people of what happened there. He wanted everyone in the entire nation of Israel to know what took place at the Red Sea. So he kept bringing them back there. He kept raising up a prophet and saying, remember what God did back at the Red Sea hundreds of years ago, a long time ago. Don't ever forget. He wanted the young people, the older people, he wanted every generation to know exactly what took place at the Red Sea. That's how prominent of a miracle and story that is. And you get all the way over to the New Testament and 1 Corinthians. And Paul the Apostle talks about this story. And he said that what happened at the Red Sea was for our benefit as well. And so there is a modern day lesson to be learned at the Red Sea. That's why we're going to go back there and take a look at what happened in the book of Exodus surrounding this story of the parting and the crossing of the Red Sea. 
And in order to set the stage and understand what takes place in Exodus, we have to back up a little bit and spend a little bit of time in Genesis. Genesis is the first book of the Bible. Exodus is the second book. And so we, we're going to go into a little chronological order here. And so for the story that I'm going to talk to you about in just a few seconds, we've got to spend a little time in Genesis. And in Genesis, we're introduced to a man by the name of Abraham. Abraham is a good man, the Bible says. He's a God-fearing man. He's a man who has a good understanding of the kind of God that Jehovah God is. And he worshiped Jehovah God and he had faith in Jehovah God. And as a result, God chose Abraham out of all of the people on the earth to reveal himself to in a special way. He called Abraham to be the father of the nation of Israel, his covenant people, and he entered into this covenant relationship with Abraham. And one day, God said to Abraham, Abraham, I want you to look in every direction. Lift your eyes to the north, the south, the east, and the west, and everything that your eye can see, all of the land that your eye can see, I'm going to give you that land. It's going to become a possession for you and for your descendants after you. It's an inheritance. And Abraham, I want you to know, it's a good land. You can't possibly obtain any better land than what I'm going to give you. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. It's a land that's going to be prosperous and fruitful. And Abraham, I am going to bless you and give you that land for free. And throughout the lifetime of Abraham, God was true to his word. And he blessed Abraham. And he caused Abraham to become influential and wealthy. And he gathered all kinds of flocks and herds, the scripture says, and all kinds of possessions, became the richest man in that part of the country. But no land. The land that God had promised to him had not become his possession just yet. He was wealthy, he was rich, but no land. And when Abraham died, he still had not received the promise that God had given to him. The promise that God had said and declared with an oath through covenant, I am going to give this to you and to your descendants forever. Abraham, when he died, had not yet received that promise. And not long after he died, the scripture tells us that there was a famine in the countryside, everywhere in the world, really, except for in Egypt. Egypt was the only place that had bread. It was the only place that had sustenance. And the reason that Egypt had all of that good food was because of Abraham's great-grandson, Joseph, who went there and made it happen. And so because there was no food anywhere but in Egypt, Abraham's descendants, his entire family, they were forced to leave where they were living, and they moved to Egypt. And there in Egypt, once again, God blessed them. And the hand of God was upon them. But what happened is the Pharaoh who had welcomed them there, the leader of Egypt, who had said to Joseph, bring your family and let them all stay in, this land, in, in Egypt, he died and a new Pharaoh took over. And this new Pharaoh didn't appreciate Abraham's descendants very much because they were so wealthy and so prosperous and he could literally see the hand of God and the blessing of God upon them. And so through a series of events, the Pharaoh 
actually enslaves Abraham's descendants. Can you believe that? The people of God become slaves in Egypt. And they find themselves in an extremely difficult and dark place. Hopeless, really. About as hopeless as you can get. And so they cried out to God. And after 400 years, count them, 400 years of suffering and 400 years of servitude and 400 years of mistreatment and oppression, God responded. And in Exodus chapter 2 and verse 24, the Bible tells us that God heard the prayers of his people and he remembered his promise the first activity that God involves himself in when we find ourselves in a dark place. He remembered the promise that he made to Abraham. The same promise he had made hundreds of years earlier when he told Abraham, look to the north and in every other direction and see all this land? I'm going to give it to you. I'm going to bless you with it. That's the promise that God had remembered and God was about to fulfill that promise. Remember, I told you that Abraham died not receiving that promise. Sometimes the promises of God don't come right away. You know, we want them yesterday. Sometimes when we read the word of God and we read the precepts of God and the testimony of God, we want that to work in our lives immediately. You know, sometimes you might think the word of God isn't true because you're not receiving that promise. I want you to know that God never defaults on his promises. He cannot lie about his promises. He doesn't go back on his promises. He remembers and never forgets every single word that he's ever spoken. In fact, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 20, again, it was Paul who said all of the promises of God. How many? All of God's promises are yes and amen. Not just yes, not just amen, which means so be it. All of the promises of God are yes and yes and yes and yes. And so it was in that hopeless situation that God remembered his promise and he tapped a guy on his shoulder by the name of Moses and he said, Moses, I want you to go to Egypt, get there as quickly as you can and I want you to set my people free from their bondage. I want you to deliver them from their slavery. And you know the story. Moses went to Egypt. He went before the Pharaoh. The Pharaoh hardened his heart. The Pharaoh was bullheaded and stubborn. He refused to listen to Moses acting as the agent of God. He refused to comply with God's word. And it took 10 devastating plagues, including the death of the firstborn son of every Egyptian family, before Pharaoh would relinquish. And finally, Pharaoh said, that's it. He said, take the children of Israel and leave the country. Get out of my sight. I never want to see you again. And so all of God's people at that point, they were delivered from their bondage. They were free from their slavery. And they made their exodus out of Egypt. But again, as you well know, a couple of days later, Pharaoh and all of his officials changed their minds. And now... They had death and destruction in front of them. All they wanted to do was destroy the people of God. No more 
keeping them as slaves. Now they want to kill them. So let's pick up the story here. In Exodus chapter 13, beginning with verse 17. Are you guys with me? Yes. How about in the back? <laughs> yeah, okay, thank you. Exodus 13, beginning with verse 17. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country, though that was shorter. For God said if they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led the people around by the desert road towards the Red Sea. Verse 21. By day the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, so that they could travel by day or night. Neither the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night left its place in front of the people. In other words, God was with them every step of the way. Do you see that? The cloud was out front. And not only was God present, but God was leading the charge. God was leading the, the whole camp, the Israelite army, as the scripture refers to them. Where were they going? Where was God leading them to? To the promised land. He was bringing them to the place that he had entered into covenant relationship with their father Abraham. And so God is leading them. God's in charge. There's this huge cloud by day. There's a pillar of fire by night. And everybody in the entire camp is forced to look at God as God is leading them. They all see God out in front of them and they have a lot of confidence. All right. Exodus chapter 14, continuing with the story, verse 5. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds about them and said, what have we done? We've let the Israelites go and have lost their services. So he had his chariot made ready and he took with his army, his army with them. He took 600 of the best chariots along with all the other chariots of Egypt. How many more chariots? 600 of the best chariots, all of the rest of the chariots. The Egyptians, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, horsemen and troops, pursued the Israelites and overtook them. Verse 10, as Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? Can you see what's developing here? The people are deathly afraid. They're terrified. And who can blame them? I mean, they have the most powerful army in the world tracking them, bearing down on them, ready to destroy them. All they see are soldiers with fire in their eyes, all wanting blood. And so all of God's people are paralyzed with fear. And they begin to ask questions like, why in the world did we ever leave Egypt? How soon they forget. All right, once again, God moved into action. Look at verse 19. Then the angel of God, who had been traveling in front of Israel's army, where was he traveling? In front of Israel's army. Remember, we read that. He withdrew and went behind them. The pillar of cloud also moved from in front and stood behind them, coming between the armies of Egypt and Israel. 
Throughout the night, the cloud brought darkness to the one side and light to the other, so neither went near the other all night long. Okay, earlier I made a big deal about the fact that God was out front, God was leading the people. As they made their way through the desert from Egypt to the promised land, God was in charge. God was showing the way. They had been moving around now for a while. During the day, there was this huge cloud, this massive cloud. And then at night, there was the pillar of fire. So if God wanted them moving through the night, they could, they could do it. But then verse 19 tells us that when Pharaoh's army began to advance on the children of Israel, the angel of the Lord switched positions and moved from the front of camp to the back. Do you remember that? We just read it. And then when the angel of the Lord moved from the front to the back, what happened next? So did the cloud follow. It's nice to just pay attention when we're reading, okay? And, you know, just go ahead and shout it out when you have it. Uh, not, not trick questions. All right, so the angel of the Lord, out front, moved to the back. God follows the angel. Here, here the cloud represents God's presence. He follows. And when he does... The cloud just forms a division or this huge wall or buffer between Israel and Egypt. Do you have that in your mind? Yes. Now, whenever I've read this story in the past, I always thought that the reason that God moved, changed positions from the front of the camp to the back was to protect his people. It was to prevent harm from coming to the children of Israel, especially the ones who were at the back of camp. So with this big cloud formation in the back, Egypt, the Egyptian armies, the horsemen who were probably out front, they had to come to a, a halt, a screeching stop. There's no way that they could penetrate the, the cloud of God's presence. And so what God was doing, I always thought, was protecting his people, making sure that the destruction that Egypt had in mind didn't happen to the children of Israel. And that's all true. But there's something else here that I want you to see. Because the scripture very clearly tells us, and this is always interesting to me when, when, we, when we get this instruction in the word, this detail, that not only did the angel go back, but so also did the cloud. How many of you know that God didn't need to go to the back of the Israelite army to protect his people with that angel there? The angel was more than enough for a little old army like the Egyptians. You don't want to mess with even one angel of the Lord. In fact, in the scripture, you can see where one angel took out thousands and hundreds of thousands of trained warriors and soldiers. God didn't need to go back there. He didn't need to go back there for protection. The angel is all that was necessary. But he went back there because with that huge formation of cloud, what he did was block the, children's of, the children of Israel's view from the approaching army. So they couldn't see now Pharaoh and his horsemen and the chariots and all of those soldiers with swords in their hand racing toward them. It was blocked out. Their view was blocked. They couldn't see it anymore. And so in essence, what God did is he removed their fear. 
He sent the angel back there for protection, but then he went back there, covered the, the rear, so that his people wouldn't be so afraid. The second activity that God involves himself in when we find ourselves in the darkness. He removes our fear. He removes our fear. You know, I've told you and I will tell you until I have no breath left that the God we serve is a miracle-working God. The scripture describes him as the same yesterday and today and forever. He's a supernatural God who performs miracles for his people. He chooses when to do it, but he does that. But we're not ever going to be able to have the kind of faith necessary to see God as a God of miracles or a God of strength until we address our fear. You see, fear is deadly. Fear will wipe out the courage you have. It'll wipe away. It'll strip you of your confidence in God. Fear will not allow you to understand just how great and how powerful God is. See, if all we ever see is the enemy advancing toward us, if our vision is limited to the armies of darkness and the lies of the enemy, or the lies of the devil, then we will live in a perpetual state of panic and confusion. We'll never have the faith necessary to fully trust God. Somehow we have to allow the cloud of God's presence to become a dividing wall or a buffer between us and the enemy. And with that shield in place, that protective shield, it will block our view of approaching trouble and all of the negative what-ifs of life. We have to be able to get God's presence and God's power between us and the trouble. And in that moment, now go ahead, that's a really good point. And in that moment, when the children of Israel look back, and when their fear was tempting to consume them, they didn't see the mess, they didn't see the trouble, they saw the cloud. God forced them to keep their eye on the cloud. Because at that point, nobody was looking forward. They were all looking behind. And that's precisely what Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2 instructs us to do in the New Testament. Keeping our eyes or fixing our eyes on Jesus. On who? On Jesus. On who? On Jesus. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and the finisher and the perfecter of our faith. And that, my friends, tees us up in a perfect way for the best part of the story. Exodus chapter 14. Not going to read every verse, verses 15 through 30. I'm just going to jump around here. Then the Lord said to Moses, Why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. Raise your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the water so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. And I have to laugh here. It's like Moses should have known that he could part the Red Sea. Come on, Moses. Just, Just do it. 
Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and all that night the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. The waters were divided, and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and a wall of water on their left. Then the Egyptians tried it. They pursued them. All of Pharaoh's horses, chariots and horsemen, followed them into the sea. Verse 26, then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea. And at daybreak, the sea went back to its place. The Egyptians were fleeing and the Lord swept them into the sea. The water flowed back and covered the chariots and horsemen and the entire army of Pharaoh that had followed the Israelites into the sea. Not one of them survived. Not one of them. But the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and a wall of water on their left. And that day, the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians. What did the Lord do? He saved them. He saved them. The New Living Translation says he rescued them with their backs against the wall. No other option. He rescued them from the trouble that they were facing, the third and final activity that God involves himself when we find ourselves in the darkness. And when you read through the Psalms, And let me just suggest that when you're going through a tough time, especially the ones that David wrote. Over and over again, when David finds himself in trouble, he says this, and I'm paraphrasing now, I have confidence in my God because I know in the day of trouble, at the very worst times in my life, God will rescue me. God will deliver me. God will save me. He will protect me under the shadow of his wings. As we bring this message to a close, let's face it, life is not always fair. Isn't today? Wasn't in Bible times. Good things happen to bad people. Bad things happen to good people. And I don't know why. And I'm not the least bit ashamed to tell you I don't know why. But there's something I do know. Something that gives me great confidence and trust in God. The words that our Lord Jesus spoke during his his ministry, when he said, in this world, you're going to have trouble, came right from his lips. You're going to experience heartache and pain and suffering and loss. Jesus said it's going to happen. It's an unfair world that we live in. But he didn't stop there. He didn't just spell out the doom and let it go. He said, in this world, you're going to have trouble, but what? Take heart. Have confidence. Be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. And he backed up those words. He fulfilled that prophetic promise and statement when he went to the cross and died there for our sins. He overcame death, hell, and the grave. And when he, did live, when he did that, he delivered us from the dominion of darkness. He did that 2,000 years ago. He delivered us from darkness. And last time I checked, he's still on the throne doing rescue ops. It's what he's doing. He's rescuing, delivering us from the darkness today. It's what he does best. And so there is hope in the dark. When we hit rock bottom and we face tough times, 
We know that our God is good. He's a faithful God. He's a God that can be trusted. Because during the difficult seasons, our God always remembers his promise. He removes our fear. And he rescues from trouble. Let's bow our heads for prayer. You know, if there was anyone in the scripture outside of Jesus himself who endured a tremendous amount of pain and suffering, that person would have to be Paul the Apostle. And through his writings, Paul said, I bear in my body, check this out, I bear in my body the marks or the scars of Christ. That tells me that there can be emotional and even physical scars that we endure in this life during our suffering and during our tests and trials. And when we think about those scars, when we think about the places that we've been, sometimes we can get bitter. Maybe we can continue to serve God, but there's that bitterness in our heart and we're always blaming him. And so difficult times that leave marks upon us, they can make us bitter. But they can also make us better. They can lead us back to the cross. They can lead us to the place of knowing just how good God is. And so, Father, I thank you in these closing moments that you would literally translate us one more time from the darkness that we are into the kingdom of your light. Move, Lord. Holy Spirit, move in these closing moments, I pray. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the Community Christian Church Podcast. For more messages like this and other resources, visit us online at cccsterling.org.